Lord, we also believe that one little word shall fell him. Satan will come against us and he will attack and he will try to strip us of any fellowship with our Savior and he will try to get us to fall. Lord, but one little word from your scripture will fell him. And Lord, we pray that you would arm us with the word today to do battle against sin and against Satan. So Lord, come today in this hour and meet us and equip your saints to fight against worry and anxiety. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Verses 25 to 34. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. The words of Jesus Christ. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all of his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You men of little faith, do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So your alarm goes off at 545. You try to wake up, you reach over and you smash the snooze button and you go back to sleep. And you finally roll out of bed at 6.15 and you go, oh my gosh, what have I done? Now I'm going to be late. And now you're worried about getting late to work. And then you're worried about how the traffic's going to be that morning and what the weather conditions are outside. As you pass by the mirror, you take a look at yourself and you start worrying about all the new gray hairs and wrinkles on your face. You go downstairs and because you're already late, you say, okay, kids, have whatever you want to eat for breakfast. And so what do they go for? the sugar smacks, and the Captain Crunch. And then you start worrying, is there anything real about sugar being related to getting cancer? Then you get the kids in the car, and you realize one of your kids has not done his homework again. And you start worrying about this kid. Will he ever amount to anything? You finally arrive at school, and you drop the kids off, and then you worry, oh, are they going to fall in with the wrong crowd? Are they going to get involved in drugs? You head off to work, you arrive at work and your boss has got a new quota that you have to meet for the end of that week. And you start worrying, oh, I wonder if I can meet that quota. You arrive home at the end of the day and you think, I'm just unwind a little bit. So you get on Facebook and you start seeing all of your friends and all of their kids. And it seems like all of them are just the perfect parents and their kids are the perfect kids. And you worry if you're just going to be a total mess up when it comes to being a mom or a dad. Later on, you reach up to get something out of the cupboard and you get that familiar ache in your shoulder and you start to worry about, do I really need that soldier, that shoulder replacement surgery that I've been talking about and my doctor's been mentioning? And if I do that, how am I going to pay my bills? I'll be off work for a month. Who's going to take care of the kids? Maybe it's not a shoulder replacement surgery that I need after all. Maybe it's a rare form of cancer that's going to kill me and you start to worry about that. And then at the end of the day, just to unwind, you turn on the news and you start worrying about North Korea sending a missile with a nuclear bomb attached to hit the United States. Or you worry about terrorism going on all over the world. Or you worry about Hurricane Harvey 
and your friends in Texas and your relatives over there and how they're going to deal with it. And then you think about your spouse sleeping next to you and about that health issue that they've had for so long and it just doesn't get any better and you start to worry about that. And you think about the layoffs that are coming at your work and you start to worry about that. And then you just are awake and you can't go to sleep because all of these things are running over in your mind and it's like your brain is an on and you can't turn it off. Now, folks, can you relate to any of those things? <laughs> all of it? <laughs> wow. Jay Adams, in a little book that he wrote, writes this little story. I want to read it to you. He says, Joe used to worry all of the time about everything. His friends all knew him as a worrier. One day, Bill was walking down the street when he saw his worrying friend bouncing along as happy as a man could be. Joe was actually whistling and humming and wearing a huge smile. He looked as if he didn't have a care in the world. Bill could hardly believe his eyes. It was obvious that a radical transformation had taken place. Bill had known Joan from way back as an inveterate worrier, so he had to find out what had happened. He stopped Joe and asked, Joe, what's happened to you? You don't seem worried anymore. I never saw a happier man. Joe replied, it's wonderful, Bill. I haven't worried for several weeks now. Bill continued, well, that's great. How did you manage it? What brought, what brought about such a big change? Joe explained, you see, I hired a man to do all of my worrying for me. You hired a man to do all of your worrying for you? Right, Joe assured him. Well, Bill mused, I must say that's a new wrinkle. Tell me, how much does he charge you? A thousand dollars a week. A thousand dollars a week? How could you possibly raise a thousand dollars a week to pay him? Joe answered, well, that's his worry. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great? If you could hire someone to do all of your worrying for you. But the wonderful thing is, you don't even have to hire anybody. It won't cost you a cent. You, the Bible says that we are to cast all of our cares on the Lord because the Lord cares for us. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, is putting worry to death in your life. All of us face worry. And if we give into it and dwell on it, we sin against the Lord. So we need to put it to death. We, we see worry really is not that bad, don't we? It's like, well, everybody does that. It's, it's like the white sins in life. It's no big deal, really. We don't even really think that worry is sinful. And yet the Bible commands us not to worry. Philippians 4, 6 in the New Living Translation puts it like this. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Do not worry about anything. Scripture commands the children of God. And in the passage we just read from Matthew chapter 6, three times Jesus tells his disciples, do not worry. So if we do worry, we're disobeying Scripture, and we're disobeying a deliberate command from our Lord Jesus Christ. That's sin, to disobey Christ. We have been talking about Romans 8.13 as being sort of the overarching verse for this entire series of messages on putting sin to death. And Romans 8.13 says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I submit to you that worry is a deed of the body that we must put to death because worry comes from an anxious mind and an anxious heart connected to this body that God has given to us. So the Bible commands us to put it to death. Worry is when we stop trusting God and we try to manipulate our circumstances to our favor. Frank Minereth and Paul Meyer wrote a book called Worry-Free Living and in that book this is the counsel they give. We suggest setting aside 15 minutes in the morning and another 15 minutes in the evening for active worry. If concerns surface during other times of the day, the person should jot them down on a card and vow to deal with them during the designated period. Worry-free living involves confining the natural worry we all feel into a designated time slot of only 4% of a 12-hour day. 
Now let me ask you something. Would you encourage your friend to only indulge in lustful thoughts for 30 minutes each day? See, we see a difference between worry and lust, but the Bible calls both of them sin. Jesus and the Apostle Paul didn't tell us, just confine your worry to just 30 minutes a day. They said, don't, do not worry at all. And that's got to be the goal of every child of God, that we not worry, but that we entrust our cares and concerns to our Father. In a recent study, this was interesting to me, it said the average person worries about two hours a day. That surprised me. But if you figure that out, that's between five and seven out or years of a normal person's lifetime. Now, do you want to waste five to seven years of your life worrying? I sure don't. So I tried to come up with a very simple and clear definition of worry, and this is what I came up with. Worry is to dwell on a fear of what may happen in the future. Worry is to dwell on a fear of what might happen to you in the future. So worry is related to fear. And over and over and over again in the Bible, God commands us, do not fear. You should just do a search. Get a search engine out and, and type in, do not fear, and see how many times that phrase comes up. God is constantly in scriptures commanding us not to fear. So we've got to become deadly serious about this issue of worry and about killing it. Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 34, is the most extensive treatment in the Bible on worry and how to deal with it. Look at verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried. Verse 31, do not worry. Verse 34, so do not worry. Jesus wants to get something across, I think. We want to look at these, and we want to see the reasons that Jesus gives why we should not worry. It's not that he just tells us not to, but he gives us six very solid reasons of why we don't have to worry and why we ought not worry. So let's take a look at them one by one. The first one is that worry is characterized by irrational thinking. And Jesus gives us this with two arguments. He gives us the argument from the greater to the lesser, in verse 25, and then the argument from the lesser to the greater in verse 26 through 30. So first of all, the argument from the greater to the lesser. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life worth more than food and the body than clothing? Now, what Jesus is saying is that God gave us a life, God gave us a body, and your life and your body are worth more than the food and drink it takes, it takes to sustain your life and the clothing that it takes to warm your body. So if God gave you the more valuable thing, a body and a life, can't we trust him to give us all of the less valuable things that it takes to sustain that body and that life? Man can provide food and clothes for other people, but only God can give a person a body and a life. And so if God has already done the more difficult thing, can't we trust him to do the less difficult thing? And that's really the argument. Paul uses the same kind of an argument from the greater to the lesser in Romans 8.32, when he says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So he's saying, God did the greater thing. He delivered up his son for us all. Can't we trust him to give us all the lesser things we need to get to heaven? Okay, that's the same kind of an argument that Jesus is giving here. God has given the greatest thing. We can trust him for the lesser things. Can you imagine a God who would give his son to die for you but wouldn't pay your mortgage or provide enough food for you to eat for that day? It's kind of like a person paying a million dollars for a house and then refusing to pay their electric bill. You know, it doesn't make sense. It's irrational. Now, there's also an argument from the lesser to the greater. And in this argument, Jesus uses two illustrations, one about birds, one about flowers. He says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. I imagine birds were flying overhead at that very minute. Jesus was the master teacher. He would use things all around him to bring teaching. He says, look at those birds, the birds of the air. 
they don't sow, in other words, they don't plant, nor do they reap, they don't harvest, and they don't gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they? Now, Matthew 10.29 says that two sparrows can be bought for a cent. So, they're worth about one half cent apiece. You can buy two for one cent. In Luke 12.6, it says if you buy four sparrows for two cents, they're going to throw another one in for free. You get five sparrows for two cents. That's how worthless these birds were. They're almost free. And yet God feeds the birds. They're not anxious about where they're going to get tomorrow's food from. Every single day, they find God to be faithful to provide enough food for that day. There's a worm there. There's an insect there. They just go out and look. God leads them. God provides their food. Jesus says, learn a lesson from the birds. Just watch them. Why are you fretful and anxious? Just look at the birds. Aren't you worth more than those birds? Which bird was ever created in God's image? Which bird was ever recreated into the image of Christ? Which bird is a joint heir with Jesus? Or has a home in heaven? And so if God provides for the worthless birds, isn't he going to provide for his beloved children? Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary, He who feeds his birds will surely not starve his babes. Good word from Matthew Henry. And then he turns from the birds to the lilies. So the birds illustrate that God will provide for our food. The lilies um, teach us that God will provide our clothing. In verse 27, or verse 28 rather, And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, nor do they spin. In other words, they don't work really hard to make their clothing. They're not sewing all the time. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory, the richest man on earth, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? His point is that the grass is temporary. The birds are pretty much worthless. The grass is pretty much temporary. Here today, gone tomorrow. Women would sometimes go out and get the grass of their field with the wildflowers and throw it into their clay ovens just to heat it up really fast to make something quickly in their ovens. Here today, gone tomorrow. Transient. Temporary. And yet we are immortal beings. We're going to live forever. Does it make sense to you? that God would clothe so lavishly those flowers and yet cause us to go without any clothing, even though we are much more valuable and have immortal souls that will live on forever? That's Jesus' whole point. If you take Solomon's garments, the best garments he had, and put them under a microscope, they would look like sackcloth. But if you took one petal of a lily and put it under a microscope, you would become lost in wonder as you saw its texture, its form, its design, and its color that no man on earth can duplicate. So do you see how irrational worry is? If God has done the greater thing, surely he'll do the lesser thing. And if he has done the lesser thing for these worthless birds and transient flowers, won't he do the greater thing for you who are made in the image of Christ and are going to live forever? That's his first argument. Second argument, worry is characterized by sinful unbelief. Look at verse 30. Well, all we really have to read is the last sentence. He says, you of little faith. There's the crux of the whole matter. Why were they worried about food and clothing? Because they had little faith. That's where it all stemmed from. That was the central issue. When we have little faith, worry rises in our souls. And when our faith rises, worry decreases in our souls. Now, what are we to have faith in? Well, we have promises from God's word that he's going to take care of all of our needs. 
Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Psalm 84.11 says, no good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. So you're going to have every good thing that you need between now and when you meet Jesus. God's going to provide every need that you have until that day when you die and go into his presence. So when we worry, we stop believing God. Remember our definition of faith from last week? It's taken from John 6.35. Faith is coming to God to find satisfaction in Him. Unbelief is turning away from God so that we might try to find satisfaction in something else. And so this would be worry. Worry is turning away from God in order to try to find satisfaction in controlling my future. We think if we just think about and dwell upon this thing I'm worried about, that somehow I can manipulate it and control it and make it turn out for the better. And yet God has promised to care for every one of our needs. So if we don't believe His Word, and we take matters into our own hands, really what we're doing is we're calling God a liar. right? God said He would provide our needs. If we don't believe that He's going to do it, so we try to manipulate things ourselves to make sure that our needs are met, we're just calling God a liar. Now, there's two words that we need to meditate on. The first one is faith, which we've already seen in verse 30. The second word is the word father. And that word comes up in verse 26, where Jesus says, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. And verse 32 where he says, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. It's as if Jesus is trying to tell his disciples, have you forgotten what God is like? God's your Father. Now, my kids, I don't think, worried a day in their life that I was not going to provide the clothes they needed or the food for that day because they knew me well enough to know that that would be something I would do for them. I was committed to making sure that their basic needs were met. And if we believe who God says that He is, I think we won't struggle so much with worry. There's only three characteristics of God that if we believe them, it would eliminate 99% of the worry in our lives. The Bible says God is omnipotent, He's omniscient, and He is loving. Those three things can banish worry from your life if you really believe them. Are we worried because, number one, we think, well, I don't know if God can really change this thing. He, maybe he's not omnipotent. Or maybe he doesn't know about this thing I'm going through. Maybe he's not omniscient. Or maybe he knows about it and he can change it, but he just doesn't care. He's not loving. But we must believe the biblical record. God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's good. He cares for his children. So the best antidote to worry is knowing God. So when we worry, we're saying, I really don't trust you, Lord, to run my life. I really don't believe you're in control. I need to do everything I can to take care of myself because I'm not sure that you know what's going on or that you care about me in this situation. Now, do you really want to vocalize that to God? Do you want to tell him that? Of course we don't. We'd be embarrassed, wouldn't we, to say that? But when we worry, that's what we're really saying. We're really not sure God's going to come through. So that's the second thing we need to know about, about worry. It's characterized by sinful unbelief. And that's why it must be repented of. Thirdly, worry is characterized by wasted energy. Look at verse 27. Who of you, by being worried, could add a single hour to his life? Do you say, I am just going to worry really hard? Because I know that the harder I worry, the longer I'm going to live. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> the opposite is true, right? The more stress you allow into your life, the more it's going to damage your, your physical uh, parts of your anatomy, your body. It's going to, the stress is going to bear on you. You'll probably die younger. <laughs> I want you to meditate with me for a little while on Psalm 139.16 because it tells us some very important things about our life and about God's knowledge of us. So Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes, God's eyes, have seen my unformed substance. 
So even when I was an embryo in my mother's womb, God saw my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. So get that, before you were even born. You were just a, a little fetus inside of your mother's womb. God had already ordained a certain number of days for you. It says in his book they were all written. So these words were written down in God's book. They were ordained by God. Nothing could change them. It was predestined, according to God's sovereign will, the days that you were going to live. And it says, when as yet there was not one of them. Before you had lived a single day, God had already decided how long you were going to live and was already recorded in his book. So which one of you by worrying is going to increase God's sovereign will for the length of your days? Nobody. <laughs> Jesus is basically saying, worry is wasted mental energy. Because it doesn't do anything. We worry about all kinds of things, don't we? That we might die young of cancer, or get into a car accident, or there might be a nuclear war and we're all wiped out, or a terrorist attack, whatever. We, we have all these worries. But worry is completely unproductive. Think about this. Either what you worry about is going to happen, or it's not going to happen. Right? Is there any other option? No. <laughs> so you're worrying about something. It's either going to happen or it's not going to happen. If it's going to happen, your worrying is not going to prevent it. And if it's not going to happen, your worrying didn't stop it. You see? <laughs> worrying is useless. It's been estimated that 80% of the things we worry about never do happen. And that 20% of the things that do happen, worrying was not going to prevent those things from happening anyway. So we end up suffering twice because when we worry about it, we're anticipating the suffering and then we end up going through it and then we worry a sec or we suffer a second time. So worrying is completely unproductive. Does anybody ever look back at the end of their life and say, you know, money was really tight at that time, but worrying got me through it? <laughs> or does the doctor say, it doesn't look good. All you can do now is worry. As though worry was somehow going to do something. Well, of course it doesn't. But we end up doing it anyway. It's a waste of our time. It's a waste of our energy. We can be taking all that time and energy and focusing on, on the Lord and doing the Lord's will and walking in fellowship with the Lord. But instead, we're wasting it on this thing that won't produce anything at all. Okay, reason number four. Worry is characterized by pagan behavior. Look at verse... 32, Matthew 6, 32. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Now, how would a Jew look upon a Gentile? As a pagan, as a heathen, as an ungodly person, as a person with no saving relationship with God. And so they would think, well, the pagan, the Gentile, he ought to worry because he has no God to trust in. He has no God to provide for him or to take care of him. He ought to be worried about his life and he ought to be worried about his death because he has no Savior. Only hell awaits him. So we shouldn't imitate pagans, is Jesus' point. The Gentiles, the pagans, they worry about all these things. Why would you want to be like the pagans? You're not a pagan. <laughs> For them, everything depends on what they can do for themselves. But the Christian is called to live a radically different life from the world. If the world is always worrying about something, and you just refuse to worry about anything, don't you think they're going to notice that? And don't you think they're going to take notice and say, I wonder what's different about this guy? Why doesn't he worry about anything? Why is he happy? And why is he cheerful? Why doesn't anything get him down? So when we worry, we're acting like a person who doesn't know God. Some of us worry so much that we might as well be atheists. We might as well. We call ourselves Christians, but we live like we really don't believe there's a God at all. I hope that convicts you if you're a worrywart. <laughs> because God wants you to give these worries to Him and walk in freedom. He wants you to be free from these concerns. 
Let's look at a fifth argument. Worry is characterized by misplaced priorities because he says in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek first God's kingdom. Now, remember the context of Matthew chapter 6. Right before Jesus started to talk about worry, he talked about serving two masters, God and money. And he says nobody can serve two masters, God and money. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or he'll hold to the one and despise the other. He also says that we need to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust can destroy, and where thieves cannot break in or steal. He's talking there about having a priority in our life that God and his kingdom and his righteousness come first. And so if we're seeking earthly treasure as the number one priority in our life, then we value the things of this world more than we value the life to come. We have divided affections. We have a blurred spiritual vision. And we're trying to serve two masters at the same time. And what that will lead to is stress and trouble and anxiety in our lives. But Jesus says, if we seek first his kingdom and lay up treasure in heaven, we don't have to worry about anything because all of the needs that we have in life, God will supply to us. It's kind of like the slave-master relationship. The master's responsibility was to provide all the needs that his slave had. His food, his clothing, his uh, medicine, if that was something that they needed. Whatever his needs were, it was the master's responsibility. The slave didn't have to go around trying to find the food and clothing. The master was supposed to supply that. But then the slave's responsibility to the master was to serve him, to obey him. That's similar to our relationship with God. We are the slaves. He's the master. He is responsible to take care of our needs. It's our number one responsibility simply to seek Him, His kingdom, His righteousness, to do His will. And these other needs, he says, will be taken care of. Now, that probably is causing a question to arise in your mind. Well, what about Christians who God didn't take care of? I mean, we know of Christians who were burned at the stake. Christians who were beheaded, even Christians in the 21st century who are being beheaded because of their Christian faith. What about Christians who die early because of cancer or car accidents? Doesn't God care about them? So, you tell me not to worry, but you can't promise me that no bad things like that are going to happen to me, can you? And of course I can't. The Bible doesn't promise you that no bad things are going to happen to you, child of God. The Bible promises that you are going to have trials in this life. The Bible promises you you will be persecuted. The Bible promises that family members will deliver other family members up to death. Jesus promised his disciples that all men would hate them. So being a Christian doesn't get you a get-out-of-suffering-free card. Not at all. In Matthew 6.32, Jesus said, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. What are the these things Jesus is talking about in context? It's food and clothing. Basic needs, right? Jesus promises basic needs to his children. Jesus doesn't promise to make all your wildest dreams come true. I hope you heard that. <laughs> Sometimes people get this idea, well, I just become a Christian, he's going to fulfill every desire of my heart, every, every, all these dreams. No, God doesn't promise to do all of that. Um, he doesn't even promise to make sure that you live out to a ripe old age. You see, being a Christian is more than just trying to stay alive or trying to live long. The goal of the Christian life is not seeing how long we can stay alive on this planet. You understand that? That's not to be our goal. If you make it your goal to stay alive, you're going to fail, because you're going to die. Even if you reach 100 years old, you're still going to die, you're still going to fail. All of us are going to die, or we're going to be raptured when Jesus comes back. We are on the planet more than to avoid dying. <laughs> 
God is going to give you all the food and clothes you need as long as he wants you to stay alive. And when he wants you to die, he can withdraw food and clothes or he can withdraw health or whatever else he wants to do because God is in control of the number of days you will live on this planet. God will supply every need that you have until it's time for you to go to be with him. And really, if it's time for you to go to be with him, would you really want to stay here when he wants you up there with him? That doesn't make sense, does it? So no, Jesus may not make your life easy, but he will make it joyful. He will give you a sense of purpose, a purpose and satisfaction that the world cannot provide for you. Jesus wants to set us free from the wrong passions. So if your career is your passion, that can go bad. You could lose your job. If you own a business, you could go belly up. You could lose your business. You could go bankrupt. If your passion is your physical beauty, just wait a few years. Wait till you're 75 years old. I mean, that doesn't last forever, right? If your passion is your money, thieves can steal it. Economic crises can take it away. It's not secure. If your health is your passion, you can become very depressed because we're not assured that we're always going to have good health. In fact, many of us in this room struggle with health issues day by day by day. But if pursuing God's kingdom is your passion, you will never be disappointed because His kingdom is eternal. His kingdom will never wither. It's not going away. So that's why Jesus says, don't pursue those other things. Pursue the kingdom of God and extending His kingdom and His righteousness. So my friends, if you have a problem with worry this morning, check yourself and ask yourself this. Is God's kingdom my priority? Is that my passion? Maybe the reason that worry is so prevalent in your life is because God's kingdom is not your passion. And if it's not, let's repent of having the wrong passion and ask God to give us the right passion this morning. And then number six, a sixth reason not to worry is because worry is characterized by tomorrow's concerns. Look at verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. None of us knows what's going to happen to us tomorrow or next year or five years from now. And that's probably a good thing, right? Do we really want to know everything that's going to happen in our future ahead of time? Yeah, no. One day at a time is fine with me, Lord. So down the road, it could be a health crisis we're going to face. It could be the loss of our job. It could be estrangement from someone that we hold dear to us and we're at odds with them and we can't be reconciled. It could be the death of a loved one. We don't know. But we do know one thing. And that one thing is spelled out for us in Lamentations chapter 3. If you want to look at it, this is that little book right after the book of Jeremiah that we seldom refer to, but there's a beautiful promise in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So one thing we do know every single morning is that God's loving kindnesses will not fail us. His compassions, His loving kindnesses for that day will be new and will be fresh for us. In other words, there will be grace sufficient for the day. So don't worry about tomorrow. I mean, God's got tomorrow covered when tomorrow arrives. What you do know is when you get to tomorrow, Jesus is going to be there with you. He's not going to desert you or leave you. He still will be with you. He still will provide for you what you need for that day. So don't worry about tomorrow. Just let him take care of tomorrow. You just walk with him right now and enjoy him in the moment. And he will see to it that your needs are met. Now, we've been saying all along that the way to put sin to death in our life is not just to focus on the sin and say, no, 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 when sin comes up. It's true, we do have to say no, but that's only part of it. The other part of it is saying yes to God's word and God's promises. We need 
the expulsive power of a new affection, what Thomas Chalmers' famous sermon. We need a new affection, and that affection is arise when we take God's word and we believe it. And when, when we believe that promise, it expels the power of that sin and we lay hold of what God has promised to us and it becomes big in our hearts and our minds and we would rather have the promise than we would rather have that sin. Now if that's true, what are some promises from God's word that will help us deal with worry? And I've written these out. You've got them on your chairs. If you want to take those home, if you deal with worry this week, pull out that list of scriptures. And folks, that's just a starter list. There's all kinds of other promises in God's word. This is just to get you going. But let me mention some of them. Let's say there's a new venture in your life. You feel God's calling you to do something new and you're worried about that thing. Maybe it's witnessing to somebody that you don't know very well. That can cause anxiety to rise up in your heart. Let's say it's going out on Tuesday nights in our missional community and knocking on doors. And Whoa, I don't want to do that. That's, I'm anxious about that, Lord. Okay, well, let's look at some promises. Isaiah chapter 41. You guys should memorize this one. This is a beautiful promise. Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So you're worried about that venture? God's with you. God will uphold you. Don't anxiously look about. Look to Him. Focus your attention and thoughts on Him because He's going to strengthen you for that venture. Another promise. Let's say you're anxious about not having the strength that you need to do something in life. It might be physical strength. You're just weak. You're just tired. And you worry about that. Well, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, And He, God, has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in us. So actually, the fact that you're weak can be a, a cause of praise to God. If God perfects His power through you and we see the grace of God making you sufficient to do the things that He's called you to do, there's a beautiful promise. Number three, what about if you're anxious about making a decision? You know you have to make it. You don't know what the right decision is and you worry about it and you dwell on it. You're afraid of making the wrong decision. I was kind of, you know, thinking about this yesterday because Debbie and I were going out to get her a car. She needs a vehicle and we prayed as we were driving out of the, the our lot right here. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us not to make a the, the wrong choice. But here's a promise from God's word. Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. When you need to make a decision and you're afraid of making the wrong decision, go back to Psalm 32.8 and repeat that. Can you believe that God will instruct you in the way you should go? Can you believe He'll counsel you with His eye upon you? Of course you can. Or how about when you're anxious about facing an earthly opponent or enemy? Someone who's against you. This happens in my business all the time when I have an ang Well, it's not all the time, thankfully, but sometimes we get angry customers. Something didn't go right on the job. And I have to call them back and try to talk with an angry person. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I, don't, I do not look forward to this phone call. <laughs> Psalm 27, verse 1. Listen to David. He says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Paul says in Romans 8, If God is for us, who's against us? In other words, God with you is a majority. You do not have to fear the people in your life and what they will do to you. All they can do to you is kill you. Right? That's the worst thing they can do. And if they do that, they've done the best thing because you're in the presence of Christ forever. Right? Man cannot harm you. Jesus said not a hair of your head will fail. 
And right in the same context, he says, some of you will be put to death. Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> some of you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. In Jesus' mind, both of those things are true at the same time. In other words, we can put our trust in him, even if the worst thing happens. God is with us. God will bring us through. Here's another promise. When you're anxious about the welfare of somebody you love, perhaps it's a child. We, when our children were little, I remember Debbie used to be worried about them being abducted or being, you know, someone kidnapping them because it happens, right? Were you ever afraid of that, your little kids? I mean, that's why we're watched so closely, our kids. Well, there's, okay, anyway, Matthew 7, verse 11. Jesus said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So we ask him, Lord, do good to my children. Do good, Lord. And we can trust him that the Lord will. Or how about when you're anxious about poor health or severe trials that are coming into your life? We have a promise from Psalm 34, verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Even if death is the way he delivers you, he'll deliver you into his eternal kingdom. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, that God is going to deliver him out of the mouth of the lion into his eternal kingdom. You will have afflictions in life. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, it says here. It's not that God gives you an affliction-free life. He doesn't. But He will be with you in the afflictions, and He will, because He is with you, He will bring deliverance out of all those afflictions in one way or another. Either He will take away the affliction, or He'll give you the strength to go through the afflictions, kind of like the three Hebrew youth when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, and there was one like the Son of God walking in the midst of them in that furnace. God didn't take him out of the furnace, but Jesus went into it with them. And you can trust God to be with you in whatever affliction you're headed into right now. Or let's say you're worried about growing old. Now that one kind of hits me. I'm 58 years old. <laughs> Debbie just hit 60 years old. I mean, that's a super big milestone when you hit 60. And I'm going to be there in two years. I'm thinking, man, I'm getting old. This, this, I talked to my brothers, and I said, how did we get to this point, guys? I've got a brother who's 61, another who's 60. This isn't right. and We're, we're supposed to be like 25. <laughs> how did we get here? Well, I guess everybody gets there. <laughs> One day at a time, right? Well, notice the promise from Isaiah chapter 46. Notice this beautiful promise. Isaiah 46, verse 4. He says, Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you. And I will bear you, and I will deliver you. God promises to carry you and to bear you as you get old as you get those gray hairs and as you get those wrinkles and as your faith starts or your health starts to fail you. God promises not to desert you. He'll be with you until you meet him in glory. He's not going to walk out on you. He will carry you and bear you. Can anyone bear witness that the Lord has done that for you? Amen? Amen? I can. How about when you're anxious about dying? Let's look at what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 14. Verse 7, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now, Paul doesn't promise us a pain-free death. You might have excruciating pain when you die. I don't know. Some Christians have had to face that. But even those martyrs who were burned at the stake, we have the testimony of many of them that they sang praises to God as they were being consumed in the flames. Somehow, God stood with them and supported them in their hour of greatest need. Paul doesn't promise that we'll have no pain when we die, but he promises that Christ will be our Lord. 
both of the dead and of the living. And he gets our eyes off of ourself and onto him by saying that if we live, we live for him. If we die, we die for him. The promises of God get us off of the circumstances and back onto him. And that gives us the power to turn worry off. Okay, how about when you're anxious about making shipwreck of your faith? I don't know, maybe you've never dealt with this. Maybe you've never been concerned about making shipwreck of your faith. From time to time, those concerns cross my mind. Because we are promised salvation if we persevere to the end. Now don't misunderstand me. I do believe that if you're truly born of God, you will persevere to the end. But I know my sinful heart. I know the weaknesses within me. And I fear lest I follow those sinful impulses and find myself one day going away from Jesus Christ. Paul says, well, let's, let's take a look at it. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the very end of that chapter. Verse 26, Paul says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be, the Greek is, cast off, a castaway. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander who made shipwreck of their faith. They were destroyed on the rocks. Their faith was destroyed. Whatever, and if, if it was destroyed, they had no true saving faith to begin with. Whatever they had was a sham. But have you ever been concerned, well, do I have the real thing? Am I a true child of God? Will I endure to the end? Well, what are some promises from God's Word? Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Has God began a good work in me? I truly believe He has. Well, then I can have confidence. He will perfect it until the very end. Faithful is He who calls you. He also will bring it to pass. God will do that. God will bring it to pass. So folks, here are many different worries and anxieties that we face. Here are some promises from God's Word that address those issues. And maybe your specific worry was not listed this morning. If it wasn't, then I want to encourage you to scour the Bible this week and find out what the Bible says about your particular issue. Find what God says about it that will be so strong that it can put to death that worry when you face it. I believe it will. Worry can be defeated in Jesus' name. And Lord, we do ask you to work in us. Perhaps there's going to be things that will come upon us this very week that will tempt us to doubt you and to worry and to fret over something that could happen to us in the future. Lord, may this message come back to help us. And may we go to your word to find the strength we need to battle it. I pray you'd give increasing victory to your saints in this area. In Jesus' name, amen.